Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash to pieces of genre cinema. My name's Chris. And I'm Gary. And this week we are discussing two interesting, if rather different, films. That we are. Um, two films with two things quite clearly in common, but other than that, almost polar opposites in many respects. This is true. As, I mean, as a, uh, unless you have a fancy introduction for this, I haven't got Oh, okay. Do you have one? Go for it. Well, in the 1960s, Betty Davis's Hollywood career was in the doldrums. I don't know why, other than just Hollywood. Because she was an older because woman. She's old, exactly. Because she was an older woman. Because Hollywood and older Simple woman. as that. Nearly 60 and with a long-standing reputation as a difficult person to work with, she found decent roles <laughs> hard to come by in the USA. Despite the smaller paycheck on offer, she was thrilled to be offered the chance to make a movie in England where she had wanted to make 30 years earlier, uh, before Warner Brothers, who she was contacted to, refused to release her. She ended up making a small handful of firm TV films in England in mid to late 60s and 70s. And what does that bring us to? That brings us to her two films that she starred in for Hammer Films. Yep. Um, Hammer Films long respected producers of british horror films mm. made christopher lee a star peter cushing um some of the best most highly acclaimed dracula films have come from hammer and it's very topical because it has recently been brought by someone new and yes. there is new content coming uh, including Dr. Jekyll, which we recently watched at Profess. Yeah, which was a, a fantastic film, which... Um, also delves into but... hagsploitation. It does a little bit. So, yeah, let's... But say, say like, you've got a little more about Betty Davis, because obviously I had my little introduction, but obviously... Yeah, no, big... of course. I, I'm a huge I mean, I Betty Davis, Betty Davis yeah. fan. Huge Betty Davis fan. Love every film I've ever seen her star in, even... which. Wow. <laughs> Wicked stepmother, okay, not so great. Um, but she is still the best thing about it. She is. She's pretty much the best thing about every film she's ever starred in. Real, true Hollywood actress. The grit and the glamour and the camp. And I love it, love it, love it, love it. So I, if you've noticed on this podcast, you know, I tend to, make choices and Gary makes choices as well to what films we're going to cover and I thought it's been a while since we did a Betty Davis film and it's not many chances to do <laughs> Betty Davis I had a look and saw that she starred in two Hammer films I thought oh what a great double bill yeah and it turns out it was and it was. we're going to spend a little time telling yeah. you why let the anniversary commence <laughs> yeah but, you know, Betty Davis was known to be difficult to work with, a bit of a perfectionist, someone who wasn't afraid to be honest with how she felt um, to anyone, anyone around her that she worked with. And unfortunately, when you are a woman of a certain age, people don't take kindly to that. And men are, of course, allowed to, mm -hmm. you know, 
John Wayne was winning Oscars well into his, uh, yeah, you know, seventies. And... Still today, Christian Bale, Tom Cruise, you know, the guy who directed that random murder mystery film, and I can't remember the name of. Was it Amsterdam? Oh yeah, David O. Russell. Yeah, yeah. Notoriously known to be difficult to work mm-hmm. with. So many men like that. Yeah, and even even back then, you know, and it, we could do. A whole series on exploitation and what that meant for actresses in the 60s and 70s um but you know they they were kind of moved out to pasture really yeah. these actresses and left their own devices and you're, you're not needed anymore and it was who's a af- uh, who's afraid of virginia Woolf? um whatever happened to baby jane that kind of reinvigorated Betty Davis's career and yeah. Joan Crawford's as well. Um, but it led to rather similar roles playing older women in rather unflattering light. Yeah. And whilst we can look back today and appreciate it for the camp value and how entertaining it is, exploitation, the whole concept of it at the time is just really... Yeah, and it, it's born from sexism, from misogyny, absolutely. It's all... And we, you know, we love these actresses in their big screen blockbusters and their small B-movie camptacular features. You know, we, we love all of that. Um, but producers and studios didn't. You know, and unfortunately, that's how you get actresses struggling to make money. Mm-hmm. Now, these are two, spoiler alert, fantastic films. Yeah. But they were born from Betty Davis having to travel, to move, and take a pay cut to pay the bills. Yeah. Because she wasn't seen as desirable as an actress anymore. And that that's, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a part of Hollywood that unfortunately we do kind of still see today to a lesser extent, thankfully. But again, like I said, we could do a whole series of podcast episodes on that. I mean, if you if you look at it compared to today, I think you know, it still exists. It absolutely does. But also it's nice to see the progress when you look at, older ladies in horror from back then it's had exploitation they had to be the villain but then if you look at it now and you look at things like uh the blumhouse halloween trilogy you look at insidious these are older women playing protagonists in you know roles that people want to see because they're playing the good girls and yeah they're not, you know they're yeah. not being forced to play hideous old ladies who want to kill people or who are distraught about aging which is sending them on a mental breakdown and causing them to kill people, you know? Yeah, yeah. And we, we, whatever happened to Baby Jane, Betty Davis was 54 yeah. when she made that film. Yeah. That's younger than Michelle Yeoh, yeah. who just won an Oscar for playing a well-rounded... And they're both well-rounded characters to a certain extent, but a well-rounded kick-ass female protagonist mm. of 
a big film, you yeah. know, and maybe it didn't start out as a big film, but it became this big phenomenal success. Yeah. Everything, everywhere, all at once, obviously. I'm speaking about, you know, and Jamie Lee Curtis still being able to win an Oscar mm. at, at an age, you know, that used to only be reserved for Meryl Streep or yeah. career Oscars, you know? Well, with that being said, let's talk about The Nanny. Released in 1965 and the last <laughs> Hammer film to be made in black and white. I just realised we hadn't actually mentioned the name of the films until that point. <laughs> But that's your first one. Here we go. Number one, the, the nanny. nanny. I did say the episode's the nanniversary. So yeah. Work it out that made me a little... Yeah. Um, Rewind, and that joke will be much better. Yeah. Time magazine, uh, and I quote, said uh, that this film is a definitive essay on the servant problem and may be taken as an antidote by those who found Mary Poppins too sweet to stomach. <laughs> I agree. Yes, yes. I mean, I haven't seen Mary Poppins, but... I have seen Mary Poppins, and, you know, maybe it was a little too sweet for uh, people's... For audiences dying to see nannies on the big screen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, We'd make a double... Should have done this as a double feature, really. We've seen Mary Poppins. Uh, Directed by Seth Holt, who did Nowhere to Go, Taste of Fear... Danger Man, Station Six Sahara, True Bearing, Espionage, Court Material, Danger Rail, and Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. Uh, in his 1990 book, Fastening Your Seatbelts, uh, Florence J. Quirk quotes from his interview with Seth Holt regarding working with Betty Davis. And he said, and I quote, Oh, it was hell. Then she was always telling me how to direct. When I did it her way, she was scornful. When I stood up to her, she was hysterical. I managed some kind of middle course and got through the film and stayed calm. Once telling her she was overacting, she said, I act larger than life. That's what my audience paid me for all these years. If they wanted ordinary reality, they'd go out and talk to their grocer. I mean, yeah. It's true. <laughs> I'm sorry, Seth Holt, but you may be the director on set. But no one's sitting down at the cinema paying their, you know, tuppence or however much it was back then and seeing a Seth Holt film. No, it ain't his film. face on the poster. No. People are sat there to watch Betty Davis play the nanny. He directs the fuck out of this film. It's a very well directed. It, it is. Um, but... Betty Davis. Stick, stick with what you know, Betty, Seth. Betty Davis doesn't need that much direction. Yeah. She very much, you know, Let's... she knows what she's doing. Exactly. And, you know, she always, no matter what character she plays, she fully immerses herself within the role and she completely sticks to it. She never, you know, there's never a moment where you're like, oh, that's just, you know, it's, it's Betty Davis. It's like, no, you believe you're watching this character. She, yeah. Absolutely, but also, I mean, the accents, I'm not sure. Um, I thought her accent was really good. In both, in both these movies. films, I wasn't sure what she was going for. I'm I not sure what... posh British, that's what I was getting. Okay, that's, I thought it was maybe that mid-Atlantic. But it wasn't too far from whatever happened to Baby Jane. Yeah. I, I, was she going for British in that? No. But she did no. say, she has said, she has gone on record saying, she, you know, she loves the British accent. 
So. Yeah, so famously, classic Hollywood, and Catherine Hepburn is the biggest example of this, there was that mid-Atlantic accent where it wasn't quite American and not quite British. Yeah. Um, and it is a little bit of that. Yes, yeah, and, and, and let's say Scottish. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, apart from phenomena. <laughs> um. uh, but yeah, um... I, yeah, Seth Holt, stick with what you know. You've directed a good <laughs> film, but Betty Davis overacting this film? I don't think no, so. She, she if anything, it's scaled back. Yeah. To be fair, and we'll, we'll obviously talk about that, but mm, okay, Seth. It's written by Jimmy Sangster, who's written both of the films we're talking about today. Oh, he also did Dracula... 19... Oh, there's another connection then. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. There you go. He also did Dracula 1958, Dracula Prince of Darkness, The Mummy 1959, Fear in the Night, The Horror of Frankenstein, The Revenge of Frankenstein, Maniac, the 1963 film, Phobia, The Devil and Max Devlin, The Snorkel, and more. So he's definitely a hammer mainstay. It's, yeah. And... Uh, also, someone that uh, Betty Davis unsuccessfully tried to seduce. Oh, His wow. His wife was fuming and said uh, if he works with her again, she's going to divorce him. Oh, wow. He worked with her again, so continue listening to find out how that ended up. <laughs> it's based on the novel by Miriam Modell. And it had a budget of $1.3 million and it made $2 million worldwide. Oh, okay. So not a big success. No. Um, the novel, what I read about the novel, and there's not much on it, I haven't read the novel, but seemingly it was a little racier than this. Yeah. And I think they changed a few things around. It doesn't, it doesn't need to, in the film anyway, I mean, I don't know about the novel, but the film doesn't need to be any racier than what it is. No, no, no. I, I, I find with novels, um, we've discussed page to screen a lot on the, on the podcast, the novels can get away with a lot more mm-hmm. than the film. So it, it yeah. tends to always be that way because literature, I mean, is there a, I mean, books have been banned in the past, yeah. but I don't think there's necessarily an age restriction no. for books, which is crazy, really. Yeah. I mean, I wonder when I bought like J.G. Ballard's Crash. When was like, when did I first read that? Oh, could explain a few things if, we, uh... <laughs> we don't even know how to buy that. Like, I mean, there's no... I don't think there's age restrictions on books. No. Not really. No. I mean, I read The Ice Storm at quite a young age. Oh, wow. Okay. Should we talk about his own film? Yes, of course. In a section we like to call, Hey, I only really care about Betty Davis, but I think I know you from somewhere else too. Well... <laughs> As you know by now, Betty Davis is in this. <laughs> you as, tell I hadn't practised that. As nanny. Not being able to read, all of a sudden. Um, of course, Betty Davis, star of All About Eve, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Dark Victory, Now Voyager, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Death on the Nile, Burnt Offerings and more. She uh, A few bits about Betty Davis during this film. She forced co-star Jill Bennett to walk behind her at the dog track one night because she thought she was underdressed. <laughs> she worked with the flu. And would drink out of her co-star's glasses and allegedly coughed in their faces. Oh, God. (laughs) Allegedly. Her daughter, Barbara Merrill, uh, felt that there was more to her mother's production delaying flu. 
Costume designer Rosemary Burroughs had proposed lightweight cotton dresses as worn by modern nannies, whereas Davis wanted a traditional old-fashioned war uniform with white collar, which were by then very difficult to find. Davis was able to leave her hotel room once one of those outfits was located, just as her daughter predicted. So, did the flu exist? Who knows? I think with a lot of these stories, you take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah. Um, it's the classic sort of Hollywood gossip. Yeah. Where half the time it was completely made up. Or deliberately trying to be salacious. And again, a lot of it was quite sexist and misogynistic. Yeah. And women always came out the worst with these gossip mongers and, and, and everything. Um, what I find interesting is that if that is true, mm-hmm. and Betty Davis refused to film without having the traditional clothes, costume, yeah. she's 100% correct. Yeah. This character of the nanny would not dress in a modern attire. (laughs) The whole point is that this woman has dedicated her whole life Mm -hmm. to other people's children. Yeah. You know, and she hasn't married. She hasn't this, that and the other. Mm -hmm. She's, that's what she's done for all those years. So Mm. she wouldn't change her attire. No. She wouldn't. She's stuck in the past. She's stuck in a moment. She's, you know, dowdy and old-fashioned. Yeah. That's the whole point. Yeah. Just because it was more difficult to get hold of, you know, Betty Davis was right. 100% mm-hmm. correct, as always, because she's a fantastic actress. The role was originally intended for Greer Garson, who first accepted, then declined, saying the script would not be good for her career. Jimmy Sangster, who, uh, the, the writer film later said i went to santa fe met with Greer, and she said she liked the script and everything was fine when i go back to london we had a message from los angeles saying that Greer garson didn't think the script would do her career much good i didn't like to say she didn't have a career in those days um yeah so Greer garson much like betty davis a huge um well-known actress and oscar winner um but i do believe by that point she wasn't making many films no. um certainly not bitten by the hag exploitation bug though no which uh, i'm assuming she was nervous of doing mm-hmm. um but again when it when it comes to filmography hers it does stop at a certain point yeah and and dwindles should i say but she she was a huge she was very much like Betty Davis, and again, we I could go on about it for a long time about how the actresses were actually the biggest box office draws, but mm. treated the worst or thrown out like uh, day old milk yeah. um, when they were deemed too old. Wendy Craig plays Virginia Fane. She was in Butterflies, The Servant, Night in Front of the Children, The Worst Witch, Emmerdale, Doctors, Waterloo Road. <laughs> I'll never forget what's his name and more. Yeah, so Wendy Craig, uh, most famous, I believe, for the the British sitcom Butterflies, mm-hmm. which I think was a sitcom, even though it was about her wanting to have an affair. But next up, we have James Villiers, who plays Bill Fane. He was in Repulsion, For Your Eyes Only, Some Girls Do, Murder at the Gallop, The Damned, 
Titchborn claimant uncovered, let him have it, and more. Oh, um, some interesting. We've seen Repulsion, haven't we? We have. Yeah, yeah. So very, very British, very British. Yeah. There's no, there's no random sitcom that he's been in. No. James Villiers' monobrow plays Bill Fane's monobrow. <laughs> I didn't know he had a mustache, though, didn't he? Yeah. Maybe it fell. One above, one below. <laughs> one <laughs> Parallel. Finally, Jill Bennett plays Aunt Pen. And she was also in For Your Eyes Only. So, you know, they're obviously... The director of For Your Eyes Only really enjoyed The Nanny, clearly. Yeah, yeah. Moulin Rouge, the 1952 version. Lady Jane, The Shelter in Sky, Hawks, Britannia Hospital, Full Circle, I Want What I Want, Julius Caesar, <laughs> and more. Bennett says Betty Davis gave her one important acting tip. Make love to the furniture. And she does. She she definitely does during one scene. So good on her for getting that advice. Um, we should also he was only in Doctor Doolittle and Superstition, but we should also mention William Dix, who plays Joey Fane. Um, uh, because he's I mean, the other main character. Yeah. Uh, he yeah was actually only ten, the same age as his character when he was making this film. So he actually couldn't attend the film's British premiere because of the X rating. Oh, that is weird. I mean, it's like so strange. I'm assuming Linda Blair wasn't allowed. Oh no, yeah. that would have been an R rating, well, it's wouldn't America, it? So America, so yeah. yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Um, Pamela Franklin, yeah. just to add, played uh, Bobby Medman, uh-huh. the girl upstairs. She was one of the gear, uh, one of the children in The Innocence. Okay, uh, one of the children in The Primer, Miss Jean Brody. Um, she was in Food of the Gods. And soon the darkness and a few of a British, very British film, and including the new Flipper's Adventure um, or Flipper's New Adventure, should I say? <laughs> do you remember Flipper? I do remember Flipper. I do. Preferred Free Willy, but I remember Flipper. <laughs> did Flipper have a nineties? I'm sure it did. Yeah, it definitely. Did. It was definitely a yeah. TV series. Yeah, it definitely had a film. Should we talk about our future presentation? Our first future presentation. Yes. Betty Davis, you've seen her before, but never like this, never before in a role like the nanny. I'm frightened. I'm frightened. Being a nanny is based on trust. It is so important that parents trust us. It's not myself I'm thinking about. It's all those nannies who have devoted their lives to other people's children. And who will look after Madeline? Without Nanny, she'd be helpless. So we open with Betty Davis as Nanny, going about her chores and feeding some birds before entering a frightfully posh home. In London, is this in London? Yeah. Yeah. Um, her eyebrows, they are thick. Yeah. They are they caterpillars. Are. I mean, I've never seen Betty Davis with eyebrows like no. this. Um, a little distracting. I'm not gonna lie. Um, maybe that's you know why I didn't notice the monobrow because I was well, too distracted yeah, suppose, by Betty Davis's. I suppose it's a lot for when they're the same scenes together. Um, I love the happy score that's playing here. You know, you think you're gonna be watching a nice family drama. You know, she's just there feeding the ducks, feeding the birds, having a nice stroll with this happy score. Um, 
which gives you a false sense of security, which is great. It does, yeah. Um, I don't think it's a deliberate thing, but, you know, comparing it to Mary Poppins, mm. we have that lovely um, Feed the Birds, Tuppence a Bag song, very sweet and mm. that business. It's, I think it's kind of a play on that. And, you know, for the most part, she... If, you know, the film's called The Nanny, you know, you're going to think something's up, but she plays it straight for the most part, and, you know, it's it's only... It's quite a while through. I think it's, like, towards the start of the second act where you, where she starts acting really creepy. I mean, before that, she's just a pleasant nanny. Yeah, you know, which... And, and the kid's a little shit who's playing up. Yeah, to, to a certain degree, which makes her creepier. Yeah. Because you kind of know something's up. Yeah. It'd be a very boring film mm-hmm. if nothing was up. So it's, yeah. something's not quite right. So the fact that she does play it straight and she does play the sweet nanny is actually creepier. Yeah. Um, because the, you see the trailer, you see the poster. Mm-hmm. The idea is that, oh my God, look at this grotesque old woman. Yeah. Look, look how she has aged before your eyes. Mm-hmm. How awful, how terrible. What yeah. a monster. So you know Simmons up, um, but I do really love the way that Betty Davis plays the character yeah. throughout the film, especially in comparison to um, whatever happened to Baby Jane, mm-hmm. because she was very over the top yeah. from the beginning in whatever happened to Baby mm-hmm. Jane. That's the whole point. Um, but she's not in the nanny. No. And she, she knows how to play it. And she's not just recreating... Baby Jane. No. She's creating her own character. Mm-hmm. Nanny. Yeah. Um. So at the home, Virginia Wayne, Wendy Craig, is in hysterics whilst being berated by her husband, Bill, James Villiers. She's nervous at the return of her son, Joey. And uh, he... Good old Bill. Um, the asshole says, pull yourself together and put some makeup on. Uh, put some makeup on. Saw your makeup out. You look terrible. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> but he's yeah, he's oh my god, he's horrible. Like he's immediately he's like he's the one that you can't stand mm. because he's a fucking dick. Um. Well, yeah. To she is, uh, and it's a theme of the film parenting. It's called The Nanny. So, you know, a big theme of the film is parents or lack of or, you know, all that business, raising children. Um, and he, she's hysterical and she's quite annoying. Not, there's no, no doubt um, that her hysterics would get quite annoying. But he's also highly um, a dick. <laughs> Like, yeah. what's the word I'm looking for? A dick, basically. He's berating her. He's not helping the situation. And again, he's fairly absent. Yeah. Um, and, and that'll that'll come across later. But he's he's not a great parent himself or a great husband. No. That son Joey is he spent two years at school for emotionally disturbed children after being blamed for drowning his younger sister Susie. Yeah, so clearly Virginia is dealing with her grief. And like we said, her husband is a grade A prick. Um, Virginia asks Nanny to go with Bill to pick Joey up from the school. Uh, is it is school, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I I was a little confused by Bay's accent. Like I said earlier, I thought she was going for a little bit of Irish, potentially. Um, but whatever, it, it just doesn't. It's not. It's not bad. No, I just don't know what it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so Virginia, who is prone to melancholy and crying spells, still grieving the death of Susie, just can't face it, and that, that's kind of. Her throughout the film, it's like, yeah. I just, I just can't deal with it. I just, I just can't, can't face. What is it you can't face? Uh, <laughs> but you, you know what I mean. So the school's headmaster informs Joey's father that his son harbors an intense dislike of middle-aged women. A bit like film producers in Hollywood. <laughs> this extends to Nanny, whom Joey distrusts and disrespects. And we quite shockingly have Joey pretending to hang himself in his room as a trick on Mrs. Griggs, the middle-aged woman who works at the school. Mm -hmm. He goes, she goes to collect him and he has rigged it. So it looks like he's hung himself. Oh my God. I mean, even like just before that, you get the flashback of Susie with Virginia saying, um, you know, oh, this and that, what I want to be when I grow up, and then cuts back to her breaking down. It's kind of like, okay, so this is actually really dark. It I is. Mean, you know, you got this kid who's dead now, talking about what she wants to be when she grows up, and then another kid pretending to hang himself. It's like, oh my God. And that's only within the opening five minutes. Yeah, yeah. You, that's shortly after the nice scene at the park with the happy score mm. and Betty Davis feeding the birds. And the whole premise of the film is, has Betty Davis murdered a child? Yeah. And will she murder another one? Yeah. Which is very dark. Mm-hmm. Um, when Jerry returns home, he refuses to eat the meals that Nanny prepares because he suspects she may be poisoning him. He abandons the room Nanny has decorated for him and moves to one with a strong lock on its door. Um, it's it's a strange one because we look at things from our own perspectives and this kid is fucking annoying. Mm-hmm. But also the mum's annoying. The dad's annoying. Yeah. And the only person that isn't is Nanny. Yeah. <laughs> She's actually coming across quite pleasant and quite nice. But like I said, the whole premise is has she murdered a child is is she a murderer mm-hmm. um and i think that's very and i think it's deliberate yeah actually i do think it's quite deliberate um in the sense of making the nanny an almost sympathetic character mm-hmm. at times spoiler alert she is in some way responsible for susie's yeah. death um nanny comforts virginia as she did when she cared for her and her sister Pen when they were children. Pen is fabulous in her fur coat. Oh, she's an absolute queen. Looking like Carol Channing. And we learn that she has a weak heart mm-hmm. from a childhood illness. But she's still a bit of a lush. Yeah. Still likes to drink and party and such. But she has to look after her, her heart. I wonder if that comes back later on yes. in the film. Um... I found it interesting, the idea that Nanny, in many ways, looks after Virginia more than she looks after Joey. Because Joey's been away for two years. Yeah. And Nanny's still employed. Mm-hmm. 
So who has she been nannying mm. for two years? Well, Virginia. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting part of, of the film. And when we talk about what we think the film is about, after all the evidence, you know, we can discuss that mm. more. Um, Joey refuses to have a bath due to the door not having a lock. He's fearful that Nanny will enter the bathroom. And uh, Virginia tells Nanny not to enter the bathroom and then asks Nanny to brush her hair. And she brushes her hair very much like she's a child. And Virginia's telling her, well, this, that, and the other. Like, like her, she's the child and Nanny's the nanny. And mm-hmm. in many ways, uh, Joey's the parent. <laughs> you know, he yeah. doesn't need a nanny. He doesn't need anyone to look after him. Um, also, the idea of a child being fearful of someone entering the bathroom whilst they're having a bath is quite disturbing. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's quite a dark film when yeah. you really look at it. Um, Joey meets his upstairs neighbour, Bobby Medman, the 14-year-old daughter of a doctor. Um, they meet on the fire escape. They do. And she bets him a fag that she has a boyfriend who's there to see her. Just to clear up for our American listeners, a fag means a cigarette a in the UK. cigarette. They're not betting on homosexuals. No. Um, he'll show... He, her boyfriend's going to show that he's there to see her by tying his laces, which he does. But it's obvious that he's tying his laces not because she's his girlfriend but because he wants to look up her skirt. Um, Joey says, he's looking up your skirt, the dirty old git. For our American listeners, I'm not quite sure what a git means. A git. Um, I don't know, git. It's an insult of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> um, weird. It's a weird scene. The idea, because this man is certainly way too old. To be looking up a 14-year-old skirt. Uh-huh. And, yeah, so, yeah. Less he, said about that, the better, I think. He tells her the plot of the film and grabs her a cigarette. <laughs> so, uh, Bill's gone away now, the father. Bill is a Queen's messenger, and he's frequently away on business. So, he's flying away for a few days uh, after seeing... Joey's hostility towards Nanny failed to subside. So, best option, go and do some work and fuck off from the family. Let Absent father. They've got a lovely mm-hmm. posh house. Yeah. And they've got a live-in nanny, but the father's absent. Yeah. And, spoiler alert, we don't see him again, again in the film. Yeah. Joey and Bobby almost drop a flower box on the milkman's head. <laughs> And Nanny defends him. So the milkman calls her a silly old cow. A silly old cow! (laughs) And Bobby doesn't really believe Joey's story. And uh, she reminds him that she stuck up for you, didn't she, Mary Poppins? (laughs) Yeah, she's very impressed by how much she stuck up for him. And uh, she thinks that Nanny would never be scared of anything. So Joey wants to prove her wrong. Yeah. He persuades Bobby to witness a a cruel prank. He places a doll face down in the bath. 
He opens the tap and persuades Nanny to turn the spigot off. She is aghast when she sees the floating doll because it reminds her of finding Susie after she drowned in the bath. Virginia's fuming. Virginia is absolutely fuming. That's the cruelest thing I've ever heard of. And it is very it cruel. Is very cruel. It is very cruel. Um, it, because it's this weird thing where Joey is accusing Nanny of murdering Susie. Deliberately so, murdering Susie. Yeah. But then making it look like an accident. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't, you know, it, it's a strange one. And I think it is a deliberate thing by the filmmakers to sort of be like, well, what is the truth? Yeah. And a lot of the advertising, and of course, a lot of the advertising focused, focuses on nanny probably being a murderer. Yeah. Um, but I think the film itself plays more into who do we believe? Of this incident, you know? This is at the turning point now. So this is when it becomes obvious that she is the psychopath that Joey's saying she is. So she's... To a certain degree. Yeah, I mean, she... She cooks him a steak and kidney pie. It's it's definitely a trigger for her, isn't it? So she cooks him a steak and kidney pie, yeah. He refuses to eat it. Uh, but she spoon feeds it to Virginia, who then falls ill and is taken to the hospital. So Nanny has laced it with poison. Joey's blamed for the incident because there's a bottle of poison found beneath his pillow. It's like, okay, well, I mean, he's not going to cook a steak and kidney pie, is he? But so. he could put the poison in when she wasn't looking. True. So there's no evidence to suggest because the, the bottle is found under his pillow. And we know... Now, mm-hmm. having watched the whole film, that Nanny was the one to leave it under his pillow. Yeah. But we don't know that whilst we're watching. No. Um. So, again, we are kind of, well, who do we believe? What, you know, it's unlikely, but there's no evidence to suggest that Joey did or didn't put the poison in the steak and kidney pie. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming he would have had chance whilst it was cooking and Nanny was doing something else. Um, like Gary said, Joey is blamed for the incident and Aunt Pen comes to babysit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Aunt Pen, being the queen that she is, quickly makes it very clear that she'd rather be anywhere else than <laughs> having to babysit. <laughs> she said, this is a terrible bore, Nanny, I tell you. <laughs> Bobby... She genu- I just feel like she genuinely couldn't care less that her no, sister's been poisoned. No. no, she just doesn't want to be there. <laughs> and She's I find... out of town, having a nice time. <laughs> and I do find a lot of people, particularly Joey, and to a certain extent Bobby, are very flippant about yeah. everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, potentially Nanny is a murderer. Yeah. She has killed and she will kill again. Yeah. Uh, they're quite flippant about uh-huh. it. And it's just, it's like some gossip about someone who works down Sainsbury's having yeah. an affair. When really it's quite serious. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that is. Why do you think 
people are quite flippant about the whole thing. Like Aunt Pen is like, I just could not care less. Yeah. That my sister's been poisoned. I, I don't, don't know. I, mean, I don't want to bingo tonight. Yeah. If that's the stylistic choice, I'm not sure what that is. Um, I don't know if it's the acting choices or. Yeah. But it's the dialogue itself, isn't mm. it, as well? I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. Bobby tells Joe that she and her dad don't believe that he didn't poison his mum. But she says that if he is telling the truth, he needs to find a way to prove that Nanny did it. Uh, he wakes uh, Aunt Pen up in the middle of the night and he's dripping wet and claims that Nanny tried to drown him. So she slaps him and starts calling for Nanny! <laughs> well, she does because she gets a little overexcited, doesn't she? She does. And that dialogue, that line delivery... It is. So it's in the trailer, isn't yeah. it? Of course. Um, yeah. yeah Nanny! So she needs her medication because she got too excited. So Joey goes up to Bobby's room and tells her all about it. Uh, she doesn't believe him again. And then he tells uh, Bobby that Nanny killed Susie. And then this is when we get the flashbacks to show us how it happened. Yes. So in the flashback, Nanny leaves the house for an appointment. Joey is playing by himself with his father's model railway. Susie threatens to tell their parents on uh, tell their parents that Joey's being disobedient because he's not supposed to be playing with the model railway. She wants to play with the railway too, but he tells her to piss off. She goes into the bathroom to play and accidentally drops her doll in the bath. She tries to retrieve it by reaching behind the shower curtain, but falls into the bath and knocks herself out. Nanny enters the bathroom after returning home and absentmindedly turns on the tap by reaching through the closed shower curtain without looking inside. Unable to summon Susie for her bath, Nanny searches for her. When she returns to the bathroom, she finds Susie floating face down in the water. Her mind snaps and she bathes the girl's lifeless body Joey witnesses this, but Nanny does not see him. Eventually, she realises that Joey knows that she accidentally caused Susie's death. And she subsequently blames Joey for accidentally drowning his sister in the bath. Everyone believes her, and he's sent away for two years. Yeah, and during that, we get Joey uh, saying to his sister, Go play with your dolls, that's all girls can do anyway. Yeah, unfortunately. So, it's, um, again, it's... A real it's, villain here. The real villain is sexism and misogyny <laughs> because also um, Virginia, ha when she was telling Joey off earlier in the film, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to have to wait till your father gets home and then, <laughs> then I'll see what he has to say. It was like, girl, come on, make a decision. Yeah. I know it's the 60s, but you don't need your husband to make every choice for you. Yeah. Get it together. So, yes, um, so then we know, the patriarchy is the real villain yeah. of the nanny. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, with that being revealed, you know, she didn't actually kill anyone. No. On purpose. No. It's um very dark. Yeah. And it's a very haunting scene and, and image, mm. actually. Um, but it kind of paints... Nanny as a sympathetic character, yeah, to a certain degree, and I think it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And later on, we find out more about why she was so absent-minded about the yeah. whole thing. 
And again, that adds to her being, in some ways, a, a very sympathetic character. Not one that was painted by the marketing. Um, which I quite like sometimes. I like the surprise. Mm. I did. I genuinely felt that this film would be about a killer nanny. Yeah. I, I just genuinely, I thought that. Um, and it's not necessarily. No. Bobby's dad finds uh, Joey in the apartment and takes him back home. Joey locks himself in his room whilst Penn rants to nanny about him. Nanny informs her that Bill will be home tomorrow. And she says... I've got a few things to tell him about that monster he's bred. <laughs> um, Penn wakes during the night and finds Nanny standing outside Joey's door holding a pillow. Nanny claims that the pillow is an extra one for Joey, but Penn remembers she would not allow her and Virginia to have pillows when they were children. She suspects that Nanny's going to suffocate him, and Penn asks her what happened earlier when Joey emerged from the bathroom soaking wet. She gets overexcited and has a heart attack, but Nanny snatches her heart medicine away from her. So now Nanny is a, a killer, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she has snapped. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that she tried to drown Joey. No. And I think maybe that's why he was so flippant about it. Mm. Because I think he's trying to get her back uh-huh. in a way for number one putting the blame on him mm-hmm. and number two what she did to Susie earlier in the, in the film uh, earlier you know when she drowned mm-hmm. so I do think that's his way of getting back at her um, but then I do think that she was going to try and smother him yeah, with the pillow because she's completely lost lost it mm-hmm. now um due to well him really it's complicated it can be interpreted in a few ways actually yeah i think you know if he hadn't have been so awful to her mm-hmm. well, playing I, I fully... that trick on her yeah i fully believe it's the trick that that, snap. and then it yeah. sort of continued you uh-huh. know and, and grew since that moment yeah I, yeah, I fully believe that's what caused it. So, I, I mean, I think she could have tried to drown him, considering it's after that happened. Maybe, yeah. Uh, I mean, as Penn lays dying, Nanny tells her that she was a single mother who works two jobs, who loves her kids and never stops, with gentle hands and the heart of a fighter. She was a survivor. Um, <laughs> she was also called to the deathbed of her daughter, Janet, who died from an illegal abortion. But this is also a cautionary tale on why abortion should be legal Women shouldn't be forced to go to shady back alley abortion clinics. Yeah, to a certain extent. But I actually think it's about... Well, Nanny, after going to the deathbed of her daughter, Janet, already shaken, she returned home to find Susie's body, which drove her over the edge. Uh, It was why she was absent-minded. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really disturbing scene. She hallucinates that Susie's still alive for a short while, uh-huh. whilst saving her, and then it'll switch between that and her being dead face down. And Betty Davis is just fantastic. This is Betty Davis acting, yeah. so it's not over the top, but it, it's more than she's had to give mm-hmm. for the rest of the film. And this is excellent acting. Yeah. It it really is. Yeah. 
Um, but I think the main theme is absent parents. Mm-hmm. You know, Nanny, she's berated by the doctor, well, she's scolded by the doctor for neglecting her own child whilst looking, looking after other people's children. Um, and her daughter didn't want to raise an illegitimate child like Nanny did and therefore wanted the abortion. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the message is Nanny was embarrassed by having an illegitimate child and therefore was absent from Janet's life. Yeah. Looking after other children that she deemed more fit to look after mm-hmm. because they were posh and not illegitimate. Yeah. And so the neglect that Janet had with an absent parent led to her not wanting to do the same mm-hmm. and therefore getting an illegal abortion. Yeah. Now that illegal abortion actually set off the events in a way that led directly to Susie's death. Yeah. Susie's, you know, Susie's death mm-hmm. was because Nanny couldn't get the afternoon off. Yeah. Because Virginia was too, and Bill, to a certain extent, with Bill's the husband, right? Mm-hmm. Were so interested in their own lives yeah. that they couldn't give the Nanny an afternoon off yeah. and look after their own children. So... In a big convoluted way, and I hope that makes sense, mm-hmm, it it's ultimately about being there to look after your children. Yeah. And being an absent parent mm-hmm. leads to all of this. Yeah. That's how I perceive no, it. No, that does make sense. Which yeah. I think is so much more interesting mm-hmm. than a killer nanny. Yes. Now, yeah. I would have been thoroughly entertained if Betty Davis pulled out a knife and started becoming a slasher mm-hmm. villain. Now, on another level. But I think it's really incredible. And I, I don't necessarily agree with the sentiment. You know, it, it's one up for debate. But I think it's so interesting to have what could have been a throwaway exploitation horror film mm-hmm. have these levels to yeah. it. Yeah, definitely. I think early Hammer definitely really thrived on stories like this. I mean, when you look at something like Never Take Sweets from a Stranger as well, there's these lesser known earlier Hammer films where when you're not dealing with monsters and fantasy worlds, there's some real thought-provoking, well-made stories here. Yeah, absolutely. Because Hammer is synonymous with British horror mm-hmm. but not all of their films are horror and no. I actually wouldn't consider this a straight up horror film I think it's got elements in there I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a straight up psychological film. thriller yeah. I suppose I would describe it as mm-hmm. really um, with some horror elements but for it to be horror the nanny would have to really be a straight up villain many extents and i don't think that's the case and well she is now <laughs> she has actually just murdered someone and she was well, tried to murder but she's got a good reason for it yeah why she lost her mind 
Um, she explains to Penn's corpse, she's now dead, um, that she cannot let Joey live for fear that someone may believe his story and put her livelihoods at risk uh, because people entrust their children to nannies. Yeah, so she thinks she's speaking on behalf of all the nannies. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it's, it's interesting because she hasn't actually got a name. She's only called Nanny. Yeah. People only ever refer to her as Nanny. Even the grown people, you know, even someone like Bill, who wasn't raised by her, mm-hmm. calls her Nanny. She's an older woman that is defined solely by her occupation. And that occupation is to look after other people's children. And I think that's, again, highly interesting. And And like you said earlier... You know, I, I can't remember who it was, but a statement on the service industry. Yeah, yeah. It was a review of the film, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nanny tries to enter Joey's bedroom, but his alarm system wakes him and he tries to escape. She grabs him by the ankle, causing him to fall and knock his head uh, on the side and rendering him unconscious. She carries him into the bath and fills it with water. But soon, the memory of finding Susie's body returns she pulls him from the bath. So, again, you know, she had the intention of doing it, but she didn't do it. No, she can't go through with it. Mm. Which is really interesting. It is. I think it's also interesting that the only person that actually is killed in the film is the childless aunt. Yeah. Who can't be bothered. Yeah. I think that's another morality sort of tale. Well, Susie, yeah, I understand that. Neglect killed Susie to yeah. a, to a certain degree, but the only person that's killed by Nanny mm-hmm. directly um, and deliberately is Aunt Pen. Yeah, the lush, childless, um, self centered mm-hmm. one who can't be asked to look after her uh, nephew. I think that's another sort of morality statement there, mm. too. Dr. Medman visits Virginia's hospital room and explains that Nanny is mentally ill and will receive long-term care. Virginia discovers Joey's at the hospital and would like to see her. She tells him she knows everything about Nanny, and Joey is no longer sullen. Instead, he hugs his mother and behaves like a joyful 10-year-old boy. Oh, He's got over that so fast. The evil has been defeated. That's the nanny. That's the nanny. Way more layered than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, really interesting morality tale. Um, I really enjoyed it. I yeah. really enjoyed it. And Betty Davis, of course, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. Yeah. No, it was absolutely fantastic. And it's a shame that back then and well, now as well, the Academy would never look at a performance like that. No. Um, when realistically she fully deserved to have at least been nominated for some awards. So. I think there's a, a nuance to uh, that sort of performance. She downplays it a lot, but doesn't go too far when it's asked for her to be a little more um, upbeat. upbeat yeah. That's not the word I'm looking for, but you know no, what I mean. mean. Uh, so for ratings, I give it nine bets for Sigs out of ten. <laughs> Am I going to get into trouble for using that? I'm allowed to use that word, aren't Did I? Did you do the same? 
No, no. I put eight Betty Davis caterpillar eyebrows out of ten. No, you bet for six. Well, bet's a fact. But she doesn't... Yeah, (laughs) I was going to say... Yeah, I'm not going to get cancelled. It is no, It is you, an actual you, word. It is your word. It, it is, is your word. But it is an actual word for cigarettes <laughs> that we use here. And even if it isn't, we, 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 we own it. It's, okay. you know. Masterpiece, trash to be trash, basic, or a camp whole bunch of fun. It's closer to Masterpiece for me. Uh, yes. Out of all those. It's very, very good. Yeah. It's a great film. Available on video on demand and DVD, and if you enjoy this, I recommend checking out Run, which is uh, another suspense-filled psychological thriller with Sarah Paulson. Nice. Um, yeah, it was a great film. If you enjoyed this, I recommend checking out The Babadook. I mean, please give your explanation. Um, <laughs> is scary entity, is it real or is it not... <laughs> Is this kid deliberately being annoying? Is he not? Um, yeah, I think it's just a similar energy. And I just, I like the idea of Betty Davis playing the Babadook. Could you imagine her in a top hat? Exactly. I think maybe... She's also the... a gay icon. Exactly. Like Babadook, so. Yeah. And that is, uh, that concludes our first feature presentation. Next up, we have the anniversary from 1968. Directed by Alvin Rakoff, who did Shades of Green, Say Hello to Yesterday, A Voyage Around My Father, A Haunted Harmony, A Dance to the Music of Time, and more. Um, but it was directed for hit by him for 10 days. <laughs> it was. And then it was directed by Roy Ward Baker, who did A Night to Remember, Asylum, The Monster Club, Two Left Feet, The Death Becomes Me. Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, Mission Monte Carlo, Scars of Dracula, The Bolt of Horror, and more. Shooting began on 3rd of May 1967. After work on uh, 8th of May, Betty Davis made her complaint about then-director Alvin Rakoff using television techniques to mark out the actor's moves and demanded his replacement. She then refused to turn up for work for the next two days, forcing resentment amongst the cast who actually liked Rakoff. Davis cost the production six days of unusable footage and two days where production was at a standstill and he was eventually replaced by Roy Ward Baker. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So she didn't want to be shot like she was in a TV movie. No. Um, so the resentment from the cast towards her in the film, very real. Yeah. Um, maybe it's a bit of life imitating arts. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Written again by Jimmy Sangster. And after the nanny, as we know, Sangster's wife said she would not only uh, leave him, but she'd leave the country if he ever worked with Betty Davis again. She duly left for their home in the south of France on the day that Davis arrived for this shoot and remained there for the duration. She didn't leave him, but she did leave the country. According to Hammer historian Marcus Hearn, Davis yet again renewed her unsuccessful campaign to seduce him. I feel like he was maybe a little, quite a bit younger than her. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Um, I don't think Betty Davis was a proponent for the sanctity of marriage. No, really, she was married a few times herself, wasn't yeah. she? So, um. Right, I see. This is 
This is based on the play by Bill Mac McLeraf. McIlrath. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, made on a budget of one point four million dollars, and it only made one point three million dollars at the box office. People just didn't want camp in nineteen sixty eight. Clearly, apparently not. But yeah, it, it was. It's very obvious it was based on a play. It is. It's very very clear. It's you know, um, one. What's it called? Location. One location. One really just one location yeah. and. Yeah, very yeah, one set of characters. Very talky, very wordy. It's definitely based on a play, which this, I love. I love. Yeah. This is quite the changing tone. Very much so. This is color. Yeah, and it's it, and I think it's interesting that the nanny is in black and white. Yeah, and this is in color because I think it's quite on point. Yeah, that they are um like that. Should we talk about who's in it? Yes, in a section we like to call, Hey, I Know You. First up, we have Betty Davis, of course, as of Mrs. Course. Taggart, but we've already spoke about her. Yes. This whole episode is about her. Um, so we have Sheila Hancock as Karen Taggart. She was in The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Take a Girl Like You, Free Men and a Little Lady, Carry On Cleo, EastEnders, Casualty, The Wildcats of St. Trinian's, yeah. and more. Whilst researching this, I didn't realise how many St. Trinian's films there were. Fucking hell. Oh, there were loads, yeah. Not just the Girls Allowed one. Not just one. the Girls Allowed one. Yeah, Sheila Hancock, um, very much a mainstay of British film and theatre and TV. Um, she was married to the guy who played Inspector Morse. Okay. So, well known, you know, she had a very long career. Inspector Morse. Yeah, what was his name? John... Inspector Morse. That was his name. <laughs> was it? No, I think it's... Oh. I have no idea. John Thor. John Thor. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't think uh, Americans will know what the hell I'm going on about. James Cossins plays Henry Taggart. He was in The Man With The Golden Gun, Gandhi, Melody, Sphinx, Coronation Street, Emmerdale. Yes. Woof, The First Great Train Robbery, and more. Yeah, um, another sort of British mainstay, not probably not as famous, but no. yeah, oh, the usual ones. You know how in America, when we talk about films that American actors and actresses have been in, mm-hmm. and Murder She Wrote always pops up. Yeah, I think for the UK ones, it's always going to be East. It's the soaps. <laughs> it's Coronation Street, EastEnders, Emmerdale. Yeah. Maybe casualty every once in yeah. a while. <laughs> um, Jack Headley plays Terry Taggart, and unbelievably, he's in For Your Eyes Only. <laughs> oh, God. Everyone's in that fucking film. Is it even a good film? I mean, I, I remember enjoying it. Everyone on my letterbox hates it. It's been a long time since I watched it. Uh, he was also in The New York Ripper, so not so much a British mainstay. Bloody hell. Uh, of Human Bondage. Excuse me. With Betty Davis. Oh, wow. I believe. That was... Was he? Yeah. Or or was it a remake? He may have been in a remake. He may have been. He may have been. Um, Because, yeah, that would have made him a lot older. Yeah. That would have made him a lot of... I mean, that of Human Bondage is from the 30s. So, yeah, yeah, I I feel it's a remake or a retelling of the story. Colditz 
uh, Only Fools and Horses, Lawrence of Arabia, Hello, Hello, oh, wow. Plot to Kill Hitler, and more. Hello, Hello. Classic. Yeah. yeah. I think. Bit of straights, yeah. Is it? Do you remember ever watching Hello, no, Hello? No, I don't. I don't know. Um, it probably hasn't aged very well. No. Neither has this film, but there we go. Yeah. Christian Roberts uh, plays Tom Taggart, and he was in Twisted Nerve, Sir With Love, The Avengers, not that one, Clutch Mirror. The Adventurers. No, he was in The Avengers as well. Was TV he? Show. Oh, the Ave- oh, that, that Avengers. Avengers. Diana Rigg. Excuse me. Colossia Merle, The Bill, UFO, The Last Valley, The Persuaders, The Mind of Mr. Soames, and more. Right. Okay. Um, you you're missing his most famous role. What's that? Merry Christmas, Drake and Josh. Oh, oh wow! <laughs> How did I miss that? I always find random Christmas films. You did. Is there anyone else you have? Can't believe he's in Mer- Merry Christmas, Drake and Josh. How is that even? We need to watch it now just to see him in it. Sorry. I just that's so random. You look you look at his you know, I'm assuming he plays some random British person who sounds very British and tells people off in a very British Uh way. Um But going from to Sir with Love and the anniversary and Twisted Nerve nothing else American and then he goes over to America and it's like yeah I'm going to be in Drake and Josh big Drake and Josh fan do you think he was just available like he, he was gone to like Disneyland or something and like, <laughs> we need a Brit- we need a very British man who's going to tell people off in a very British way well, I assume I'm only I'm only assuming I assume it didn't do very well so I assume that was his break into America and it just didn't go any further <laughs> what like 40 years afterwards well it's never too late to, to stop you never stop trying it's never too late so we have Elaine Taylor, who uh, plays Shirley Blair, and she was in Casino Royale, mm-hmm. not that one, okay. the earlier one um, that everyone hates. Uh, she was in All the Way Up, Look Up Your Lock Up Your Daughters, Look Up Your Daughters, <laughs> Lock Up Your Daughters. It's a strange request. <laughs> Half a sixpence and Diamonds for Breakfast. Uh, now Diamonds for Breakfast. <laughs> I'd like to just show show Gary the yes. poster. It looks amazing. Where a, a young lady wearing a rather short dress is kissing a gentleman. Uh, no, hang on. You left out the best part, her boobs. And the, oh, those big... Was I finished? Well, I thought you were. With her big, um, shiny PVC black knee-high boots. She's hanging off a window ledge, giving a young man a kiss and... I think there's a cat there as well, so um, that's been added to the watch list. Yeah. So yeah, and that that's it really. Um, a lot of the cast, obviously apart from Betty Davis, were part of the stage play, weren't they? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into our second feature presentation. We'd like you to meet our sweet, warm-hearted, lovable. Mom. God, what kind of a woman do you think I am? Put her on a bonfire, tie her to a stake. Mom is having an anniversary, and the whole family got together to discuss what to do for her. A party? No, we gave her that last year. Champagne? No, not enough. Fireworks? No, cliche. 
This year, we decided to do something really special for our mom. This time, we really kill her. My God, she's scummy! This one starts with opening credits set to the anniversary song by the new Vardaville band. Yeah, frightfully upbeat music, uh-huh. isn't it? And we see Shirley, who visits a building site looking for a Tom Taggart. And she meets Henry, Tom's brother, and informs him that she's Tom's fiance. He informs his brother Terry about it, and he is fuming. He's like, two-faced conniving little bastard. <laughs> and he says he's going to warn Karen, his wife, about it. Yeah, he's absolutely... We don't know why he's fuming, but he's absolutely fuming that Shirley and Tom are engaged. And he, he pisses off. And it's the end of the workday now, and one of the workers tells Henry to wish his mother a happy birthday. But it's not her birthday, it's her wedding anniversary, which she still takes very seriously, despite her husband being deceased. Mm -hmm. Um, Henry has forgotten the anniversary and has to pick up some flowers on the way to his mother's home. Which is his home as well, actually, which I realised afterwards. Mm -hmm. Tom takes Shirley home and offers to take her upstairs for a quick one. Yes. Exact words. Um, she doesn't want to because she's visiting to meet his mum. Now, this house, much like the apartment in The Nanny, is very gothic. Yeah. Now, obviously, the apartment, which is quite amusing to say apartment in The Nanny, because it looked like a big mansion, um, was very hammer gothic. This is, the house in this, it's gothic, but it's like, if, you know, you're gothic, but you're throwing a colourful house party to celebrate, I don't know, the latest episode of Jay McDonald. Yeah. It's, it's something, you, you know what I mean? It's, it's very bright. And yeah. So it's, fair, it's fairly decor. modern and kitsch yeah. to a certain degree, but it's obvious that they've come from old money. Yes. Um, because it's it's clearly a very old house mm-hmm. that's been kept up, you know. And yeah. the, the, the idea is that she's a very rich bitch, mm-hmm. ultimately. Tom asks Shirley to do a song on the piano, but she doesn't want to. He informs her that his mum will throw a pot at her if uh, she refuses to perform for her, and she says she'll throw it right back. So immediately you know... If Betty Davis is uh, going to be a handful, this Shirley's going to give her it right back. Yes. Um, we get a little bit of sexism, a little bit of misogyny, because that's the theme today, when Tom says she doesn't like it when she can't get her way. It brings out her feminine side. Lovely. He then shows off uh, his <laughs> mum's trophy cabinet, which includes his first tooth, one of Terry's nappies, and a prize that Tom won on Brighton Pier. Yeah. Yeah. This one's very British. Um, very British. I mean, like, the nanny is British in a Hollywood sense. This is British in a. Oh, no, this is actually British kind of way. Yeah, there's only a few years between them. Mm-hmm. But this is very. This feels very 60s. Yeah. Very Britain in the 1960s. Yeah. And I think maybe because it's in colour, so the costumes are different, and there's more of an emphasis on the the sort of differences between the characters. Yeah. 
and the age differences and and such if if you know what i mean it, it's very much tom and shirley a young swinging 60s mm-hmm. uh wanting to shag on the sofa and and all that business and in many ways the Betty davis character mrs taggart is old-fashioned do you know what i mean yeah henry arrives and tom reveals that their mum doesn't know shirley's staying Henry seems concerned about this, and Shirley offers to leave, but Tom insists that she stays, and asks if his mum knows that she's pregnant. <gasps> this is something else that he hasn't told her. This film is absolutely filled with melodrama. Yes. It's like an episode of EastEnders on speed. It is. It is. Karen, Terry, and their five kids arrive at the house. Terry gives Tom a talent off because he's worried he'll steal the spotlight from some news that he has to tell their mother. And then we get the moment. So yes, the big moment. Madame X makes her big arrival down the stairs to the love song from the opening credits. And we say Madame X, of course, as a reference to Madonna, but it's Betty Davis. I'd I'd hope anyone listens to this podcast knows the reference. With an eye patch. Yes. Um, and this is the big, big from all the marketing. This was the big deal. This is her face with this eye patch on the poster, laughing maniacally. Betty Davis adds another portrait in evil as the most merciless mother of them all. And remember, mum's the word for depravity. Yes. She's an emasculating woman whose husband, a successful building contractor, has been dead for 10 years. It's her annual celebration of her wedding anniversary. So Henry puts the music on. She does a dance whilst walking down the stairs with a pink dress, pink eye patch and pearl necklaces. And it is just such a huge slay. It really is. I was living, absolutely living for it. It's, that is how you make your entrance. Uh, you know, she is RuPaul walking into the workroom. <laughs> and the library is well and truly open. She does not hold back. And the rest of this film is just her reading people to fill. That is all this film is. It is. Because it, the, the marketing makes it out like she's going to start murdering people, yeah. this, that and the other. But really, the whole film is her being awful to people insulting them if words could murder it'd be a massacre exactly and it's from the get-go the library's open from the get-go they're talking and talking about henry and karen says henry's pushing 40 mum and mrs taggart says he happens to be waiting for the right girl not like some i know that marries the first tart that winks them into the nearest bed hey terry No, I've given her a bit of a British accent. I can't do a Betty Davis impression. No, she... Peter. Peter. No, I can't. Peter. She asks if Shirley is one of Karen's kids from an older marriage. (laughs) Tom has brought... uh, Well, first she asks Tom if he wants Shirley to stay. Uh, Tom has brought his mum a statue of a boy that squirts water out of his dick, and she loves it. She, she thinks it's hilarious. Funniest thing she's ever seen. It's a strange choice for an anniversary gift, but she seems to be enjoying it. She's fuming that her grandkids are staying over. 
and thinks they're only interested in her for what she's buying them. Uh, she reminds Karen that she only had three kids, and she says this by saying, I had three chicks of my own. Only three, I grant you, Karen. But natural good manners tell me when to put the plug in. Yeah. <laughs> whoever wrote this, I mean, we know who wrote this film. He, I mean, whoever wrote the play, must be a homosexual. Potentially. I mean, only the gays can write reads like this. It's... <laughs> Potentially. What was his name? The guy who wrote the play. Yeah, Bill McIlwraith. Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure. Maybe. <laughs> um. After Mrs. Taggart leaves the room, Karen informs Shirley that they won't have to put up with Mrs. Taggart much longer as they're moving to Canada. Terry and Tom bicker about this, and Karen tells Tom off because Terry's sensitive. Sher- uh, Shirley informs her that Tom's sensitive too, to which Karen says, I'm not talking about being ticklish in the long grass, Shirley. <laughs> now, Karen gives Mrs. Taggart a run for her money in terms of funny reads. Yeah. Um, Tom and Karen briefly joke about setting the house on fire whilst Mrs. Taggart sleeps and Shirley is rightfully horrified. So this is, again, this idea is that they might kill their mum because she's so awful Mm -hmm. and so horrible. Uh, It comes up a a couple of times and it's Tom and Karen who are sort of the main ones talking about this and Mm -hmm. it appears in the trailer and everything in the... You know the, the the mother of all horrifying women, and they're gonna kill her off. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoiler alert: it doesn't happen, but no. you know it's it's high camp when it's in the trailer. Uh, Mrs. Taggart soon tires of her grandchildren and sends them home. She yeah, she uh, gives them some money, and one of them kisses her. And she wipes it off immediately, looking disgusted. <laughs> Henry obliges to take uh, to drive them home, and Mrs. Taggart tells him. The world is better for having him in it. Henry is clearly mother's favourite um, in a very Norman Bates kind of way. Yeah. She uh, asks Henry when Tom's wedding is with little Miss Bag of Bones. Yeah. To which uh, Henry reassures her that Shirley seems nice and she says, hmm, I'm sure she is for someone else's son. Um, yeah, so she escorts him to the car and informs Karen that they need to go home or they'll wreck the bar. Yeah. Um, and Mrs. Taggart informs Shirley that if they were Roman Catholics, Henry would make a great Pope. <laughs> Karen's got a little bit of an issue with Mrs. Taggart giving the money, the kids yes. money. She says, I wish you wouldn't give them pocket money. They'll only buy ice cream and they got their ration for today. Mrs. Taggart said, ration? What, what are you preparing them for? The next war? Do they sleep in the underground and wear gas masks around the house? You're a hard mother, Karen. Very hard. Karen says, that's that's how I want their teeth to be, Mum. Good and hard. Which Mrs. Taggart replies, now don't put words in my mouth. I didn't say good. I don't think you are a good mother. (laughs) But it's not my place to say so. (laughs) I love this kind of dialogue Uh in films. It's... It kind of reminds me of the classic Hollywood way of writing dialogue. Yeah. Uh, whippy one, whippy, quippy one-liners yeah. and reads and 
there's no, I don't wish to age myself because we all love a bit of vulgarity, but there's not a massive amount of vulgarity in it. No. It's, you know, it, it's still, not, I wouldn't say pleasant, but do you understand yeah, what I no, mean? No, no. Mrs. Taggart invites Shirley to sit next to her so she could take a good look at her. And she says, Tommy's taste is changing. He used to like a lot of flesh. You wouldn't fetch much on the butcher's slab. Shirley informs her that they're going to get married. Mrs. Taggart describes how their wedding will go before suggesting that Tom won't turn up because he loves being the centre of attention. Will it be a white wedding, my dear? Yes, yes, it will. How many bridesmaids? Two, all in yellow, and they'll each carry a bouquet and you'll carry a prayer book and the bells will ring tingling and you'll be so happy and we'll all be so very sympathetic when Tommy doesn't turn up. <laughs> I I feel like this this episode's gonna be just us reading this dialogue. Uh -huh. It's just too good. I don't want to miss yes. out on any of it. She also says, uh, "Shirley, my dear, would you mind sitting somewhere else? Body odor offends me." <laughs> Shirley is fuming at this and informs her she doesn't have body odor, but storms off. Terry and his mother argue over the new house builds. Uh, she's put a lot of restrictions on times to get the new houses made and Terry and his workers cannot keep up. Uh, not being able to take criticism or disagreement, that's when Mrs. Taggart changes the subject by, <laughs> by insinuating that Shirley has B.O. <laughs> um, Mrs. Taggart surprises Karen and Terry by telling them she's brought them a new house of £15,000. And Tom is fuming and keeps telling Terry to ask the mother for the receipt. Karen tells Terry to tell her about them moving to Canada and he refuses, so she tells her straight out. And uh, she brings Shirley into it, Mrs. Taggart. She says, you see, Shirley, Terry was never a leader. He was always led. And now he's being led to Canada by that pregnant cow over there. <laughs> Hearing Betty Davis calls the one a pregnant cow, that's yes. how it Mrs. Taggart also worries what Terry will do for work over in Canada. She says, a carpenter? You can't hammer a nail in without being rushed to hospital with a broken thumb. Who built that broom cupboard behind the door so you had to walk into the kitchen sideways? The only thing you're good at is making shavings. Two weeks in Canada and you'll be deported for sabotage. <laughs> Tom and Terry both come for Mrs. Taggart and her handling of the family business since her husband died. So they're all getting a little defensive, uh -huh. and a little argumentative now. And uh, again, her emphasis on speed has led to them building shoddy houses. And Terry in particular feels like a con man. The argument is interrupted by a call where Mrs. Taggart is informed that Henry and the children have been in a crash. Um, she says, that was the cottage hospital. Henry's been in a crash. The car overturned. Karen says, what about the kids, mum? She says, oh, poor Henry. They're operating on him. But the kids, mum, what about the kids? I'm afraid their condition is critical. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It's just too good. And then deliver. I'm not doing it justice. Of course, I'm no Betty Davis. I'm not a two-time Oscar winner and, you know, legend of the silver screen. Um, but it's so hilarious, this dialogue. The film um, takes a bit of a sour turn at this point. 
when Shirley goes up to her room and finds Henry there. She comes down screaming and Mrs. Taggart casually strolls out of the room. She tells uh, she tells Tom that, I mean, this isn't the sound, this is hilarious. She tells Tom that it was a phone call from someone asking about one of the houses her company's building. And she says, it's an eye for an eye, so Karen knows what it's like to lose a son. <laughs> so funny. Like, really dark humor, but hilarious. Yes. The sour note is when Shirley tells Mrs. Taggart that Henry was wearing her clothes. And Mrs. Taggart says, you should take that as a compliment. He only wears clothes that are clean and pretty. He's very particular, my son. That's great. She's very supportive of her, uh, of her son being potentially trans. Great. Very progressive. The way the story goes really drags it down and isn't so progressive. It's, 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 yeah. So the idea, I, I believe that he's a, a transvestite mm-hmm. and he's got what they describe as problems. Yeah. And it goes hand in hand with him wanting to dress in women's clothing yeah. and we never thankfully we never see this so mm-hmm. it's, it's never played for laughs necessarily in the big reveal of him dressed in women's clothing no. but the idea is that his kleptomania because he only ever wants to wear clothes that he's stolen mm-hmm. the kleptomania and the um him being a transvestite go hand in hand yeah, that's that's where for me the depiction is very iffy and very dated. Yeah, and it's very much discussed uh, like it's a common knowledge that because he dresses in women's clothes, he's a pervert. And yes, it's know, something to be ashamed yeah. of. Yeah, it's very much a product of nineteen sixty eight, and it's by far the worst thing about this film. Yeah, but it is the kind of thing that if it came out, would ruin his life. Yeah. And I mean that that is a fact, hmm. you know. But it's the fact that it's you know all play for laughs. Except it's it's either play for laughs or it's insinuated that him wanting to wear women's clothing makes him a pervert, mm-hmm. makes him you know mentally ill, makes him someone to be shamed. Yeah, that's that's the issue, obviously. They all go out for dinner. Mrs. Taggart tells Shirley all about her great sense of humour. A guy shows up at the dinner table and is fuming that Terry didn't put all of his floorboards down. Terry refuses to do it and threatens to punch him in the face so they have a brief little fight. Mrs. Taggart signals the waiter to bring the anniversary cake out. It's huge, pink, and has so much candles. It does. It's just as flamboyant as her outfit. Uh, Mrs. Taggart tells the angry customer to bring his family to the restaurant and she'll pay for them all to have dinner while she gets someone to go out and put down their floorboards. She's then disgusted to find out that the little squirt, in her words, has seven kids. Yeah. <laughs> Nine? Who would have thought a little squirt like that would have seven children? <laughs> she tells Emery to go and fix the floorboards and before we know it, back at the house. But yes, it's... Uh, it, 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 again, Dr. Davis calling someone a little squirt. Back at the house, Henry returns Shirley's clothes to her room and apologises to her. They have a conversation and she starts off really sweet until Shirley suggests that Henry goes to see a psychiatrist. He tells her he doesn't need to because dressing in women's clothes doesn't do no harm to anyone else. 
for explaining that if he didn't do it, who knows what else he'd end up doing. And these little things where it's like, at the start of that scene, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe we are going to be progressive. And it's like, no, we're not. Yeah. Um, and I, I th- maybe it, it's a reference to that sort of Norman Bates, psycho-esque, yeah. it being maybe part of some greater ag- aggression or, mm-hmm. you know, um, he could become violent if he doesn't dress in women's clothing. It's, it's all very iffy. And yes, of course, it's, it's of the time. Um, but we have someone like Shirley who's actually in part quite understanding about mm. the whole thing and then turns quickly and says, oh, well, you know, we all have our idi- idiosyncrasies, but yours should probably be sorted out. Uh, he, when Henry's walking down the stairs, he's like, excuse me, Karen, I've got to go and lay those floorboards. So she says, make the most of it, mate. That's all you'll ever lay. <laughs> yeah. And again, the idea is that Henry is probably a virgin, never been in a relationship under his mum's firm for all these years. And it's played for laughs. Um, of course, but it is again. It's a bit iffy, isn't it? The Henry, the Henry character in general. Mm. Not sure what to make of him. If he, is he a homosexual or is he not? Um, yeah, it's iffy. Karen goes to visit Shirley in her room to bitch about Mrs. Taggart, and Karen warns Shirley that her time will come with her, and gives her advice on how to deal with her. Shirley says she can handle her and that she plans on being the boss in her marriage. Karen isn't so sure that right. that's going to work out for uh, old Shirley. Uh, her and uh, Tom have another fantasy about how to get rid of Mrs. Taggart, to which they are caught when Mrs. Taggart appears on the stairs with a costume change, yes. an amazing green dress, and now a black eye patch. She yes. even changed her eye patch. Serving in green. She opens the door to her dead husband's office, which has a big portrait of him, and Tom tells her how they're all sick of her. She informs them that all that she informs them all that Terry isn't going to Canada, and that if she goes, she'll let everyone know about their secret. Um. Yes. Their secret being uh, <laughs> that they have an agreement. I'm just thinking. Tell her about this. The, the, their secret, and I'm like. Doesn't she tell them the secret straight away she anyway? Does. She does. Okay. Yeah. Like blackmail doesn't really work like that. <laughs> she does. She tells them that Terry and her have an agreement that she gives him a thousand pounds every time he gets Karen pregnant. <laughs> Tom thinks it's Codswallop, and Karen confirms that it's Codswallop. She tells a story Codswallop. about <laughs> anyone not from England and uh, well the UK. Um, Google Codswallop. Yeah. <laughs> It's not as rude as it sounds. <laughs> she tells a story about her mum uh, and how she had a quiet word with Mrs. Taggart to inform her that uh, she'll give Terry the £1,000 for the kids. But Karen knew about it and says that she was giving them the money for kids that they already wanted. So they were playing her, really. And Karen then reveals that she gave them another £1,000 recently for their latest kid that doesn't exist. Karen isn't really pregnant. Yes. So, Mrs. Taggart, fuming, and she deals with this by threatening to call the police on Henry because of the way he is, 
uh, and that the only way she won't do it is if Terry doesn't go to Canada. Yeah, um, I liked when the the idea is that um, Mrs. Taggart was trying to kill Karen by getting her pregnant so much. Yeah. Because Karen's mother had described some sort of heart issue uh-huh. that Karen had. Um, Karen says, uh, when my mother heard that my second baby was on the way, she started on at me about not allowing a decent interval in between. She started going on about my heart. You've got a dicky heart. No, besides, kids come out of me like bullets. <laughs> but you know, mothers, I was supposed to have... <laughs> Ever since then, she's maintained I'm delicate. <laughs> so, so I just think it's so funny that Mrs. Daggett was trying to kill her off uh-huh. by making her have five kids. <laughs> but she was fine because kids just come out of her like bullets. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Lovely. <laughs> what a way to put it. <laughs> Karen uh, thinks Henry should go to prison. Uh, Shirley says uh, he shouldn't. But she does think Terry should still go to Canada, to which Mrs. Taggart says, you're a bit of a cretin on a quiet, aren't you? (laughs) Mrs. Taggart says about Henry, he's getting worse. I can't get inside his room for undies. I'm keeping making a more British. (laughs) I don't know what voice I'm going for, but imagine Betty Davis saying that. Mrs. Taggart asks what is, uh, what's false about Shirley before demanding to see her ears. Uh, she's horrified. <laughs> so fucking stupid. Horrified by her repulsive boxer's ears. This is very clearly some, like, special effects ears. Fake ears that have been put on this poor actress <laughs> to make... And they are, like, rugby player, um, what's it called? Cauliflower ears. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Huge, but also clearly very fake. <laughs> it's high camp. Yes. <laughs> Mrs. Tiger wants them all to host a toast to the father and then performs her husband's favourite hymn, Rock of Ages, for everyone. Now the talent show begins. Yeah, well, before that, she speaks on her husband's behalf when toasting. She says, Oh, <laughs> who's. <laughs> She's speaking as if it is her deceased husband. <laughs> Ah, whose is that new face I see? Must be a girlfriend of Tommy's. Strange what men find attractive. <laughs> and people were like, what a thing to say. I was like, I'm just speaking on his behalf. <laughs> it's not me, it's him. It's just what he would say. <laughs> um, she demands Terry performs for them. Uh, Beautifully he, as yeah, well. Plays piano while she lights up a cigarette. She um she tells Terry to take up piano again because he owes it to culture. Yes, very nice. Which is still quite supportive of her children. Yeah, I think it's just when women become involved that she's not uh-huh. so uh, supportive. Tom to- decides to recite a poem for them about a woman forgetting how to say no in bed. Yes, yes. Uh, and Mrs. Taggart then demands that Shirley performs for them, and she refuses to. Mrs. Taggart informs her that she could stop her getting married to Tom. At first, she tries to make Shirley believe that Tom is already married. Yes. And then tells her that he brought a girl called Heather along last year 
Shirley's the third girl he's brought to the wedding anniversary, and he only does it to spit in his mother's eye. To which Shirley says, I'd spit in the other one if you had it. And this is where all shit breaks loose. Yeah. Um, she comes for Mrs. Taggart's disability. Yeah. And people are genuinely like, why'd you take it so far? Karen's What's like, you stupid little bitch bringing up the eye. Exactly. Mrs. Taggart then gives the backstory about how Terry shot her in the eye as a kid and has never looked her in the eye since. Yeah, so essentially it was Terry messing about with BB gun or whatever when he was younger and shut out her eye. Yeah. And so it's not necessarily her coming for her disability. It's the idea that for Mrs. Taggart, who is someone who relishes in emotional blackmail, mm-hmm. this is the biggest, biggest form of emotional blackmail that she has. Yeah. And it, she hadn't used it until Shirley brought it up. Yeah. So Terry, who is prone to feeling very guilty and is feeling very guilty about moving to Canada, this just makes things totally worse. Yeah. And Karen knows this, and that's why she calls her a stupid little bitch. <laughs> Shirley doesn't back down, though, does no. she? She continues to call her old one-eye, and she lets her have it. But she may have taken it too far when she tells Mrs. Taggart she has and will be making all the decisions in Tom's life. And he doesn't seem very pleased at the idea of Shirley making Mm -hmm. all the decisions. Yeah. She demands Tom leaves with her for a walk, and if she tries stopping her, she'll come back and poke out the other eye. Yes. Um, Mrs. Taggart puts on a fur coat. She fucking does. And starts letting off some fireworks. Whilst Henry breaks into a neighbour's garden to steal some more underwear. She sets a bonfire as well. It's giving um, Mink Stoll in Pink Flamingos. It's so camp. <laughs> Seeing Mrs. Taggart and Betty Davis there in this fur coat outside, setting off fireworks that look like they were just brought from the corner shop. Oh my God. Hilarious. And it's so, camp. so random because the house is lovely and big, but the garden's giving me normal british garden yeah. i don't i don't know when, i'm assuming they're shot in two wildly different places yeah. because it doesn't seem like it's the same house it seems like the garden i had mm-hmm. growing up you know and it's like it's high camp to see betty davis i hope there's some footage somewhere of betty davis going around london <laughs> or you know going buying fireworks buying fireworks or something like that um because you don't I don't imagine her really seeing places like that. I don't know, it's it's weird, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's the whole Hollywood thing. Maybe this was uh, part of the ten days that the other director filmed. Maybe, maybe. It's his back garden. Yeah. The owners of the house uh where Henry steals the underwear from start shouting at him as he runs off down the street. The police go after him and find the underwear in Terry's car that Henry was using. He drops more of the underwear on the street as the police chase after him. Again, all play for laughs. And it's just not funny at all. Yeah. Um, also, I don't understand why anyone would leave their washing on the line overnight. Like, it's pitch black now. They should have brought that washing in a lot earlier. Yeah, we, we don't have a washing line. So, I mean, I can't say uh, what I would do. But yeah, it seems... Well, did you not have one when you were younger? Oh, yeah. We had a washing line when we were younger. 
The amount of trouble I'd get into if I left it out overnight. Yeah. I suppose as well, you know, the weather's a little bit different. God. They'd steal your washing line. They wouldn't steal steal your underwire. Hit the whole thing. Uh, Tom starts comparing Shirley to his mum and she's fuming. They have a kiss and she tells them whatever he wants to do, it's fine with her. So he wants to go and get it on in his mum's bed. Yeah, he suggests that to make amends, they shag in his mother's bed while she's locked out wanting to get in. Shirley isn't down with that, understandably, but Tom is adamant that this is what he wants to get one over on his mother. Mm -hmm. And it's what he wants, not what Shirley wants, that ultimately counts. Yeah. Weirdo. Yeah. How strange. Why would... No, I'm not even going to get into it. I mean, at that point, that's what Shirley should be like. Red flag, yeah. You want to have sex whilst your mother is desperate to get into the room. Mm -hmm. Right. Henry arrives home and tells Terry that he left the underwear in his car. Mrs. Taggart tells Terry that it's his car and if the police arrive, she won't tell the police it was Henry and not Terry who was using the car. To cover for Henry more... Mrs. Taggart grabs the underwear from Henry's room and burns it on the bonfire. Yeah. And I mean, it's a lot. It is. She empties drawers and it's full of women's underwear. Uh, Henry believes Terry should take the blame, but Terry is understandably reluctant. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it did make me laugh because uh, Henry's like, well, if you go, you know, get into trouble for this, it's a first offence. So you probably won't have to go to prison. But if I get, go, you know, get into trouble for this, it's my first offence mm-hmm. and I won't go to prison. But when I inevitably do it again, that'll be my second offence. Yeah. So it, that did make me laugh. It's a bit like, okay, um, a bit privileged here. <laughs> um, Tom informs his mother that he and Shirley are going to bed. So she asks for a kiss. A bizarre series of events. Mm. He gives her a peck on the cheek, and she grabs his face and snogs him before looking at Shirley and saying, "Follow that if you can." She then says, "Shirley, if the police come, keep out of the way. I don't want them to think I'm running a house of ill repute." <laughs> <laughs> Henry uh, tells Shirley to walk away while she can, and she reveals to the room that she's pregnant. Shirley asks Mrs. Taggart if she cares about the baby. And she's like, no, I keep seeing it with your ears. Yeah. <laughs> she couldn't give two shits. <laughs> Terry thinks it's a good idea that he doesn't go to Canada. Meanwhile, Shirley and Tom start having sex in his mum's room. Terry confirms they're not going. And uh, Karen's like, you had a good anniversary, haven't you? And Mrs. Taggart says, oh, it's not over yet. And she tells the couple that she wants an IOU for £5,000, which they agreed to. Yeah, and she gets Karen to sign. Yeah. Shirley gets on the bed and screams when she finds Mrs. Taggart's glass eye. <laughs> on Mrs. the pillow. <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Taggart casually tells Terry and Karen about this. And Tom runs out of the room and informs his mum that a glass eye has given Shirley a miscarriage. Yeah, this is a bit of a what the fuck... Yeah. moment is like okay are we playing this for laughs mm-hmm. it's, it's strange 
Um, Mrs. Taggart calls the police to report Terry's car stolen. Yeah. Because she's a clever bitch. And uh, Karen is the only one to go comfort Shirley. And Tom asks his mother if Shirley will be okay. To which Mrs. Taggart says... Uh, no, he says she seemed to be in a lot of pain. Mrs. Taggart says, not pain, dear, just discomfort. Like hay fever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. Um, very strange. Mrs. Taggart informs Terry that uh, he has to get back to work in the morning on the new office block that they're building. She's got more work for them because of the way they've treated her. And Karen informs them it's a false alarm. Shirley actually didn't have a miscarriage. They all confront Mrs. Taggart now for going too far this time. She turns the blame on them for letting her bully Shirley all night, which they did. They did to a certain degree. Yeah, they never really came to Shirley's defence. No. Um, they were too interested in defending themselves, mm-hmm. I suppose, and trying to get one over on Mrs. Taggart. Yeah, Karen tells Mrs. Taggart how desperate she wants her dead, and Mrs. Taggart says, My God, she's scummy, green with envy. Karen tells Tom to leave with Shirley, and he does after telling Henry that he could be his best man or his bridesmaid at his wedding. Yes. Uh, and if you... Which sounds progressive, I know, but... if you ignore everything else that happened before that point. Then... Yeah, but it comes across as a joke. Mrs. Taggart informs Terry she's never cared for him, and he tells her that he won't be coming to work for her because he, Karen, and the kids are going to Canada. They leave, and Henry goes for his bath. Yeah, Henry goes... So Clearly, Henry's still living at home. He goes upstairs to get a bath... And Mrs. Taggart reads him one last time. She says, oh, Henry, who was that mucky French artist who used to paint fat women getting in and out of the baths? I don't know, Mum. Why? Oh, never mind. So she kind of fat shames him. And I don't... He's actually fat shamed a couple of times Mm -hmm. in the film. And I don't don't think he looks that big. No. Really. Um, Yeah. It's one last... It's the last read mm-hmm. of the film. It's it's a shame, really, to to sort of end on a, a bit of fat shaming. But, um, yeah, I thought I had to include it as it's the last read. Yes. Uh, she gets on the phone to her solicitor and asks them to start legal proceedings in the morning for the IOU from Terry and to give £5,000 to Shirley. Mrs. Taggart says goodbye to her husband until next year leaves his office and starts playing with her pissing statue while laughing. And that's the anniversary. And that's the anniversary. Yeah. So, yeah, Mrs. Taggart, she uh, also tells us to solicitor to inform the Canadian immigration people that IOU is outstanding in Terry and Karen's names. Yeah. Um, so she gets her way in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually. So... It's uh, it's such yeah. a shame that this has uh, a bit of the uh, dated uh, aspects to it because I mean apart from that this is fantastic. It is. It's really so much of it is very witty, very funny, very camp, acted really well. Obviously, Betty Davis. This is more of an exaggerated character for her, one that she's 
you know, quite well known for um, sharp, witty, um, a little villainous as well. Um, great performance from her. But I also think the rest of the cast gave fantastic performances. And you could tell that they were seasoned actors and a lot of them had performed on the stage in these roles as mm. well, which I think really helped. Yeah. Um, I think, what was her name? Shirley, what was her name? Excuse me. Um, Sheila Hancock, apologies. I thought she was absolutely fantastic, mm -hmm. you know, and more than gave Betty Davis a run for her money yeah. when they're scenes together. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it, uh, apart from those iffy yeah. moments and, yeah, and, and it, it just leaves a, a, a sort of sour taste in the mouth, unfortunately. Yeah. For ratings, I give it seven reading sessions with Madame X out of ten. <laughs> I give it seven offensive cases of body odour out of ten. Uh, Master Beast Trash Speech Trash Basic or a Camp Hold Bunch of Fun. This is a Camp Hold Bunch of Fun. Camp Hold Bunch of Available on DVD and video on demand. And if you enjoyed this, I recommend checking out Monster-in-Law. Nice. If you enjoyed this, I recommend checking out Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And with that being said, let's get to the awards. So for our regular listeners, these are our usual awards. But instead of giving them to each film, this will be as a whole. So the winner for Biggest Queen for me is Mrs. Taggart in the anniversary. Mrs. Taggart in the anniversary. When you're able to read people constantly like that without even thinking about it, you've got to be the Biggest Queen. Absolutely. And to serve a look as well. I have some ties. Biggest Gasp um, the, it's a tie between Joey pretending to hang himself in The Nanny mm. and Mrs. Taggart snogging her son in the anniversary. Do you know what? I completely agree. I, I went with Joey pretending to hang himself, yeah. but no, I, I completely agree on both of those. And my next tie is best dialogue. So I have Nanny from the <laughs> Nanny and all of Mrs. Taggart's insults in the anniversary. I did think, I just could not narrow it down. Um, I did think maybe the BO1 or the pregnant cow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I completely agree. Uh, or everything, all the reads. And that's camp. It has to go to her Mrs. Taggart's big entrance in the anniversary. Mm -hmm. Yes, and just just the way she looked was yeah. high camp. Just her existence was high camp. So if you're a fan of either of these films, let us know which one you prefer. We are Horrorcore Trash over on Facebook and Instagram. Horrorcore Trash on Twitter. I'm dead at Gaz92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, and GazCruz92 on Twitter. I'm Chris Barker823 on Letterboxd and Instagram. And go check out Gas Horror Festival across all social media. We are accepting submissions now for next year's festival. Give us a rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Like a follow on everything else. Give us a rating on Spotify. Um, do you have a conclusion you'd like to do about... Betty Davis and her range between these two films as a whole. In terms of how much a fantastic actress she was, yeah. that she could do comedy and very serious mm -hmm. acting. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, to me, she's one of my favorite actresses, and I really want to go through all of her films. And I, I, yeah, I just think she's she can do camp, she can do serious. Yeah, what do you think? No, I completely agree. It's interesting for me as well looking at Hammer, because obviously okay. the big focus of this episode is Betty Davis. But the episode is Betty Davis at Hammer. Me, it was interesting looking at two films that are completely different to the mainstream view of Hammer. Because obviously we've seen some of the older films as well when they were at Columbia, but you know this is after Columbia, and it's just yeah, it's it's bizarre to me that everyone knows them for Dracula, mostly Prince of Darkness, Dracula, um, and you know Frankenstein, the Mummy, etc. They have like little gems like this stashed away as well. Yeah, I know. I do think both of the films were marketed as if they were horror films. Yeah. As if Betty Davis was recreating Baby Jane Mm -hmm. and very much playing off of that. Um, Which is interesting, but you get something completely different when you watch the film. That's kind of, you know, again, tale as old as time Mm -hmm. when it comes to film marketing. Um, I, I just think that, you know... Like I said earlier, Betty Davis has consistently been the best thing in everything I've ever seen her in. And these two films are no exception. I do think that if somebody else played the parts, I might not be sat here giving it a round of applause. Um, But she is, and I am. Next week, we are discussing four films that you might not be giving a round of applause to. (laughs) We will be discussing The Wishmaster Friend. Wishmaster through the years episode. I don't really know too much, so I, I don't loved, know what to expect. Well, I loved the first one, right? Which I watched when I was a lot younger. I knew it as a classic, a modern classic. I felt like everyone knew what it was. Oh. I knew about it when it first came out. When mm. I wasn't really, you know, I was a bit too young to be fully into horror. Everyone knew about it. Did you not? I'd heard of it, but I'm. Gonna be honest, I thought it was the Christopher Walken films, but that's the prophecy, isn't that's it? The prophecy. So I'm misremembering Wishmaster. Yeah. So it's a blockbuster classic. Right. Okay. And we'll be diving into awful all four films. Awful. And probably, <laughs> probably the sequels that will be awful. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, we'll be back same time, same place next week. Bye. Bye.